This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find our show notes, which have got a wealth of background information and links to everything that we mention at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. In this episode, we're going in search of that mythical beast, a digital experience which is greater than the sum of its parts, true multi-touchpoint experience design. And you might remember that in episode 26, our special all about wearables, we talked about Pins Collective, a digital pin badge, which was worked on by a Swedish design agency called Top. Well, our friends at Top got in touch to say that they could tell us a bit more about that. So I sat down for a chat with Roger Anderson Raymer, one of the co-founders and user experience director at Top. Now, Top and Mex have got a bit of a history. James Halliburton, the CEO and another one of the co-founders, has spoken at several of our previous Mex conferences, uh, and Top has also partnered with us to run some creative workshops at Mex. Going back further than that, several of the co-founders are alumni of TAT, or the Astonishing Tribe, which was a Swedish mobile platforms and design company that was acquired by BlackBerry and went on to do much of the experience design work for the BlackBerry 10 platform. Now, TAT was one of the early sponsors of Mex and of our design awards. And you'll see why this is important in the interview. That background of really deep understanding of mobile user experience meant that when the co-founders of Top left BlackBerry to set up their own agency, they were ready to take things to a new level to design these multi-touchpoint experiences where the interaction canvas extends beyond a single mobile device and instead unfolds across multiple different devices or sensors or displays. It's something which I think has become a bit of a hallmark of their approach as an agency, and it was one of the reasons why I was excited to learn a bit more about it from Roger. So Roger himself is a co-founder at Top, um, and his journey has taken him through various different interaction design roles at Vodafone, TAT, and then at BlackBerry. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Here we go. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex, and I'm delighted to be joined on the show by Roger Anderson Raymer, co-founder of Top. Roger, great to have you on the show. Hey, Marek. Thanks for having me. So where are you dialing in from today? So I'm, uh, I'm in Malmö, Sweden, which is uh, on, the, on the southern part, um, very close to Copenhagen and uh, mostly famous for Zlatan Ibrahimovic and, and the bridge that leads to, to the mainland Europe. Great, yes. Yeah, I know it well. I uh, remember very fondly a trip out to Malmo in the winter a few years ago. Um, beautiful city. Well, it's, it's great to have you here, Roger. Um, as you know, there is a bit of a tradition on the MEX podcast, and that is that we start with our show and tell section where we ask all of the guests that come on the show uh, to come up with 
an example to get the conversation going. And I guess the overall theme of, of our chat today is going to be about multi-touchpoint experiences. And I know that you've been off to look at a couple of examples of these, which you might want to talk about. Which one are you going to choose to get us going? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting field, I would say. Um, and the one I think that maybe is most current and, and the, the one that kind of I keep thinking of these days is uh, uh, the Snapchat uh, service kind of combined with uh, the this, this spectacle eyewear that they're kind of keeps popping up a little bit everywhere now these days, in, especially in the US. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of news flow about it recently. Yeah, so uh, what what kind of uh, sparks my um, sparks my attention with this? I mean, I haven't been over to the States in a while, so I haven't been able to try them myself. Uh, but it seems like a very interesting uh, proposition in terms of kind of bringing the service to uh, to new places and, and actually extending the service with something that is very appropriate for a wearable. So recording something that was simply not possible to record prior. So just for those of our listeners who haven't had a chance to see this themselves, do you want to just explain in a nutshell what the experience of Spectacles is and how it differs from the original Snapchat product? Because my understanding is that they've, as an organization, they've gone through a bit of a transition recently where now you have Snap Incorporated, which is kind of the parent company, and it's producing both uh, the service of Snapchat, which is what it's probably best known for, and then Spectacles is kind of this almost like this separate experimental product that they've launched. Yeah, uh, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. So although I'm, I might not be like the heaviest Snapchat user, I mean, I'm always curious about what they're up to. I mean, they've done some very interesting things on their main service. But this, this kind of spectacle initiative, uh, it kind of, I would say, really narrows down on bringing a certain use case to, to kind of digitalized eyewear. So, so those, um, those glasses essentially that you put on your face will allow you to kind of record uh, more story-like videos kind of in the moment. Uh, with, I mean, also kind of taking into consideration some of the kind of the, the flaws that were kind of present in, in earlier attempts in, uh, for those kind of products. Like whether you're actually showing that you're doing something with them or not is very present and, and, and visible on this uh, on this specific hardware. Yeah, because this as a concept, you know, as a, as a product category is not particularly new now in that we've had things like Google Glass before that. I remember that we had a company come and talk, I think, at Mex several years back called Vuzix, which was doing something around digital eyewear as well. So th these products have existed before, but I think you're right. There is something interesting about spectacles, something different and unique, um, particularly in relation to this concept of experiences which are designed natively to unfold across multiple touch points, which seems to be something that they have managed to achieve to quite a high level of quality with, with spectacles. Because it, as I understand, it interacts directly with the, the Snapchat app, right? So you can record the video footage through the spectacles, but then you can do some interesting things in the app itself 
um, before you then send that on or do something creative with it? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it's a very kind of interesting back and forth between these two touch points, as you call them, as well as kind of really carving out like what what's what's the purpose of adding something on top of the service that that actually kind of brings uh, experiential value, uh, both in the in the moment of recording as, as well as kind of in the in the stuff that gets recorded eventually. One of the other things which caught my attention about it, and in fact we did a piece in the MEX journal at mobileuserexperience.com about this a little while back, is the the brand feeling that comes with spectacles compared to other perhaps sort of higher profile examples like Google Glass. And to my mind it comes down to one core thing and that's the sense of fun that goes alongside these. Like Google Glass almost became this, um, you know, real <laughs> like headline example of the the sort of the craziness of Silicon Valley culture. And there were all of these different memes and tumblers showing various people just looking ridiculous wearing something like Google Glass. And Spectacles is very similar. I mean, in some ways, they're actually a less refined piece of hardware than Google Glass was. And yet people don't seem to feel quite as self-conscious about wearing them, and nor do they look quite as ridiculous when they do wear them, because they they seem to have captured that sort of intangible sense of fun within the product, which is really difficult to put your finger on as a, a set of design characteristics, but it, it seems to exist with this. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like that they, there is a kind of red thread of, of their their unique identity with, within that product. And and I mean, to your your uh, Google example, maybe at that time that was very kind of indicative of, of who Google were when they were launching the, the glasses. I mean, very kind of experimental with technology, but maybe a little bit too much of a technological mindset in, in that product at that time. Yeah, very true. Very true. Okay, well, given that you have shared an interesting example to get us going, I feel like I should reciprocate. And what I wanted to talk about was one of our MEX principles, which we recently posted up at mobileuserexperience.com. Over the years of running the MEX initiative, we've had numerous of these design principles relating to different aspects of digital experience design come out. And we've started to highlight and catalog those recently. And the first one that we put up relates very much to this field of multi-touchpoint experience design. And it states that the fabric of connectivity defines the experience. And what we mean by that is that like right from the outset of exploring this whole concept of how you create multi-touchpoint experiences, which for us started like way back in, in 2009, we knew that the cloud, for want of a better term, was going to be uh, have a really important role in enabling those overall experiences to happen. But there was, and I think there still is to some degree, this tendency among designers to rely on the concept of a generic cloud to simply say, okay, if we're going to have you know a smartwatch and a tablet and a home entertainment system working in concert with each other, then we'll use this you know generic cloud to kind of glue that all together. Um, but of course, the nature of that cloud, the nature of the fabric of that connectivity, which glues all of those things together, is really important to the 
quality of the overall user experience. And this is where it tends to stray more, I guess, what would traditionally be the territory of engineering. Um, but you know, things like the latency, the bandwidth, the reliability inherent in those different cloud connections, which make a multi-touch point experience function, uh, have this really significant role in shaping that experience for the consumer. Uh, and we came across various different user stories, user experiences, these, one of which, which really resonated, which, you know, was in a household where there was quite a lot of technology. You know, these were relatively early adopters and they were still downloading the video files to a local computer uh, and then using those to stream it locally to an Apple TV when they wanted to watch the video, which was kind of in their personal cloud, um, on the big screen in their living room. And they were aware of things like AirPlay and things like um, the uh, Google Cast technology, all of these different uh, underpinning technologies which exist to make those kind of experiences work. Um, but they were making that choice quite consciously because they had been um, undone numerous times by things like Wi-Fi dropouts and buffering, yeah, things which impacted the quality of that consumption experience when they wanted to sit down and, and watch a movie. So they were relying on this kind of older technology because for them, it made sure that the user experience uh, was actually of a, a quality um, that kind of kept it a, a calm, relaxing evening experience to watch a film rather than spending all of their time figuring out the, the technology. Um, now, I know for top, you know, this is very much in the heartland of some of the work that you do as a design agency, enabling these kind of multi-touch point experiences. Um, how much time do you guys spend thinking about those connecting technologies and, and how they impact that overall user experience? Oh, there was a, actually quite a, a number of good lead-ins to, to various conversations, Mark. I think that what, when, you, when you're kind of describing this anecdote, it's it kind of to me points to like how designers and maybe the general industry for a long time treated the cloud as something kind of blurry or magical that that was too hard to approach. Uh, but actually, the the way you kind of tell that story it it really points to the value of looking at experiences and 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 actually regular people's day to day. Uh, needs in the sense of they they simply want to get a job done. They want to watch a movie in, in a nice, cozy environment. Uh, and as designers, we can kind of uh, stay away from, from cloud or whatever kind of enables that to happen these days. But we, we need to kind of be actively working and thinking uh, with all the materials that kind of uh, come come across our ways and across the products that we're kind of uh, working on these days. So, uh, in one sense, I would say we we think about it a lot, but it's also blurry for us. And it, things are simply uh, simply there as tools in various ways. We have, uh, I mean, I think we've kind of been actively exploring it in the sense of making sure that we can make these types of experiences tangible when we start to explore them. So uh, we built our own tool, Noodle, that you might heard about. Yes, Noodle is a, a really interesting initiative. Um, when did that start for Top? Because I know now that you have it out there as 
like a product that people can go and check out and, and use. We'll, we'll include a link to it in the show notes, in fact. But when did that start within Top? I would say it uh, as as a concept, it started already already on the first project we were doing for for one of our first clients. So, uh, kind of we as our company kind of was uh, started, we we kind of actually gathered people with quite a broad range of backgrounds for for a design consultancy. Uh, so we had a, a number of people that had a very strong tech tech background or development background or prototyping background. Uh, and those people were not kind of actually happy to be kind of only exploring uh, prototypes on, on behalf of designers, but they wanted to really enable uh, designers to go explore those things themselves. So the inception of, of Noodle as, as as what you see today, it was kind of uh, kind of uh, brought to life already there, and then of course it took some time to get it to to the state where it's at. But it's been kind of actually kind of a back and forth evolution of all the things we're seeing when we talk to to people and our clients, and the things we see when we're trying to actually uh, design them and, and and explore them. So, can you give me an example of? what you can achieve with Noodle. I mean, it, at its heart, I suppose it's a tool for planning multi-touchpoint experiences and being able to prototype and experiment with them in quite tangible ways. But you know, what are some of the things that you guys have been able to do with it internally? So I guess it's, uh, I mean, the simplest way uh, to explain it is that it, it's it's a prototyping tool that you you can for sure make a standard app with. As, but the kind of the more interesting nuances of that is that you it's very easy for anyone to connect basically anything and and have that as part of their their experiencing that experience that they're prototyping. So essentially, you can uh, you can connect a sensor or a motor or any actuator, but you can also connect kind of data sources uh, and cloud services. So meaning that you can as a designer very easily prototype a voice interface that is maybe on a separate hardware device combined with with an app that would go with that or many screens that would go with that one voice interface for example so this is like right in the the heart of what multi-touchpoint experience design is is evolving towards to my mind um you know i think in commercial terms like on the mass consumer market at the moment a lot of the experiences are still stuck around like that example that we talked about before of people wanting to replicate content from one screen to another. But uh, with something like Noodle, I think this is taking it to the next level where actually rather than it just being about replicating content, it's about a much more interesting set of interactions which are happening within each of the touch points themselves, but also between those touch points and contributing to that overall user experience which is you know maybe the the interesting more exciting next phase of, of multi-touchpoint experience design yeah sure i mean it's um it's very easy to kind of if if you're setting out to kind of explore one of these kind of systems it's very easy to get kind of caught up with what you what you have in front of you in terms of, of like the standard screens that we all have like a, a desktop computer or a mobile phone uh, so it's very easy to just apply all your kind of inherent thinking from that into this new touch point. 
Whereas if, if you're uh, in an easy way actually able to experiment with what that touch point should be and what, what its purpose is and what its kind of essence would be, then then you're kind of on the way to actually define a bit of the future of these touch points. So I'm always quite interested in origins, Roger. And you, know, you mentioned earlier a bit about some of the background of the people that came together to form TOP. And it, maybe that's something we should talk about a little bit, because I think it's, to my mind, it's directly informed what the agency has become today. Yeah, because as you say, you, you were able to bring in those people who perhaps didn't have the traditional designery designer background, but actually came from a slightly more technical perspective. But you know, what what was the inception point for that? Because a, a lot of you came from that sort of that that Malmo group that was involved with TAT and then BlackBerry after they're acquired. But you know, what, what was that sort of moment of inception when you realised there was a a new agency forming here? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a good question, and and kind of uh, in hindsight, I think we uh, we were a bunch of people in in a larger group of people that. That had been working at, at TAT, the Astonishing Tribe, uh, that was then, as you said, acquired by BlackBerry. And and we, I think we we've been we've been doing kind of design projects in in kind of pre- predominantly the, the mobile industry for for quite a while. And like being part of BlackBerry, we had a pretty interesting challenge of actually yet again trying to define like a, a new uh, mobile operating system. But there, there was something kind of that we felt was emerging on, on the horizon with all these kind of new connected products that we felt wasn't really within reach, not for the kind of foreseeable future at, at the point where we were at at that time. So slowly but kind of steadily, we, we started to have kind of inspiring conversations of both kind of being able to work with these new uh, emerging things, but also kind of work in new ways. Uh, so it was very natural to to not try to set up a design consultancy that looked like every other design consultancy, uh, but actually have a kind of broader perspective in, in the people that would kind of constitute that group. And how much of the learning that came from TAT, the, the Astonishing Tribe, went into informing that particularly on the technical side because as i recall from tat and if tat was one of the the real early supporters of the mix initiative um there was a part of that business which was very much about developing technical platforms and and developing the kind of technology which was needed to run some of those early mobile user experiences as well as the the creative services agency side um, were those experiences which directly informed, you know, what you were able to do with with Top? Yeah, I mean, I think we we had uh, we 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 owe that period of time a lot of our kind of current um, success and position, I would say, uh, in the sense that we've kind of been in the been kind of involved with a lot of kind of interesting conversations or, or interesting projects and kind of seen seen many sides of the coin in the in the sense that. TT had like the technology track and the design track, and we we saw and learned how they need kind of to actually interact with each other and collaborate uh, in order to kind of pull off interesting things. 
so it was a very kind of uh, foundational experience for uh, for all of us in kind of knowing where we wanted to go with uh, with this company. And what about for you personally, Roger? Like when you think back to um, the path that you took to, to get into to top and, and the, the organizations you're involved with before that, yeah, was there a moment in your own mind when you started to think of yourself as being a designer or a digital designer? I don't know. I mean, which of those two pro- terms do you prefer? Do you, do you think there is a separate branch here of, of digital design which you subscribe to, or do you always see yourself as a, a designer overall? Uh, so it's a good, good question, actually. And I think these, these days I would, uh, I would define it more as, more as a designer uh, because I think all these things are constantly... Uh, constantly actually leading towards the same thing of kind of actually making making stuff that people would enjoy or would be beneficial to their organizations or or to their kind of everyday lives so it's also all the digital products that we tend to put out is kind of design in the traditional sense as I would say it Uh, and I think my stories started kind of uh, way back in the 90s where I was kind of playing with with Photoshop and, and Deluxe Paint and, and all those kind of graphical programs that were out there. Um, I didn't really have a goal at the time, so I went on to study uh, cognitive science and, and kind of get ex- got exposed to everything from kind of philosophy to, to AI, which wasn't that much of a hot topic those days. Uh, but but the thing that kind of stuck with me was, was this kind of interest in, in human behavior uh, that I then kind of found where kind of very well went together with all these things I've been doing as a maybe uh, a novice visual designer uh, in, in my early days. How interesting. So the the sort of formal education was around the the, the, the behavioral aspects, but it was the... The visual design side which was the, the hobby and the side interest yeah uh, and i think at at, at those uh, i mean mid the, or early 2000s like uh, the field of interaction design for example or user experience design were were not that neither articulate or mature at least where where i was staying so uh, it, it was more natural to kind of progress through the kind of visual design or, or communication uh, centric things uh, and then as soon as I found uh, the group of people that were kind of doing doing interesting things at TAT I, I think I, I I realized like the the broader the broader impact you can have with with those kind of uh, means and methods so that to me kind of the the real eye-opener was to get a, get in touch with with TAT in, in like was it 10 years ago or so? Uh, and then uh, things started to roll from there, I guess. Do you think there's something about the ecosystem around Malmo and, and that area in general, which has contributed to uh, so much good interaction design work coming out of that geographical area? Because it, it's something that I've noticed you know, over all the years that we've been running MEX, that there does seem to be a disproportionate number of people who have gone on to do really good digital design work that have come 
through that sort of that part of the world in some way yeah i think it's uh, it's definitely i think there are, there's two two main things that pops to mind uh, in in hindsight at least and that that's uh, that's partly like uh, this very kind of ambitious design school here um, at uh, at the Malmö university that kind of started a interaction design program in in the 90s way before uh, that was uh, kind of on the agenda for for a lot of other places. So I think they they also had a very kind of interesting uh, kind of ambitious perspective in in being prototyping centric and being kind of very purpose driven. And like there's a lot of a lot of the people I I worked with or kind of collaborated with in in various ways have kind of gone through that school. It's not. Maybe as as well known as as other schools around Europe, but it's it's definitely a very nice uh, center of uh, of interesting things still. Uh, I think also the kind of Sony and Sony Ericsson heritage kind of has enabled people to kind of play uh, with the big guys uh, already from from the start of their career. So this has been a, also a good training ground for a lot of both designers and, and kind of entrepreneurs in general. It's it's interesting that, as I said, it's something that you kind of become aware of when you're involved with something like MEX, which obviously is quite a, a large community internationally. You can start to pick out these sort of trends as to where people are coming from. And going back to what you were saying about the educational path as well, you know, as well as certain specific geographic areas in the world, there's also um, increasingly that sort of correlation between those who have um, studied or had an interest both in uh, you know, things which get you very close to the human condition, uh, be that around philosophy or psychology or anthropology, uh, and those that have had that kind of that design background and being able to unite those two things together certainly with the guests that we've had on the podcast over the last year uh, i seem to be noticing that those who've had those those two strands to their educational background are often the ones who go on to do the most interesting things um, but you know, bringing things back to kind of where we are today and one of the motivations for uh, wanting to get together and, and talk on this podcast um, was some of the work that you've been doing recently with Pins Collective. And we actually picked the work that you'd done with them as one of our case studies of the week in a new series at mobileuserexperience.com. And I, I just found this particular example really captivating. Do you want to tell people, just describe a little bit what, what Pins Collective actually is? Because it's a, a concept that I've not really come across before. Yeah, nice. Uh, and uh, thanks for the kind of appreciation of the project as well, of course. Um, we um, so the the simplest way to say to to describe it is is to to view it as a is a digital pin that is uh, where we're similar in in shape and form to any traditional pin that you would wear on your uh, on your jacket or on your bag or whatever. Uh, but it's not really about adding like a digital component to a pin, but it's actually trying to actually going back to behavior. It's kind of adding a digital way to support the behavior that that pins 
actually constitutes for us as people. And what is that behavior in, in a nutshell? You know, how, what, what have you tried to capture there? What is this spirit of human emotion which we're trying to distill into this product? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, th- this type of, uh, this type of a pin is, is actually, it's a way to express opinions. So in, in the past, you would, you would try to kind of, uh, you would, we would like to tell the world, you would try to tell the world what you believed in or what you cared about through maybe wearing a t-shirt with band's logo or wearing a pin with, uh, uh, with a kind of political message or simply any fun message as well. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of, that's the essence we're trying to, uh, not only us, but we, this was client work. So we worked together with a entrepreneur in Stockholm, uh, in order to create this as a Kickstarter campaign together with uh, with another collaborator of us uh, but uh, essentially bringing that uh, that sentiment to kind of work in in this area where things are going so quickly and you have a new pet peeve or a new uh, new thing you mind about uh, that you didn't mind about last year so essentially kind of bringing up that kind of public messaging and your public identity to to work in the in the speed of this digital era yeah so that that social element of pins collective is something which really interests me because it it seems key to the overall creativity and the potential for this to be something which isn't just about even adornment or fashion but but something which is about like a creative conversation between a wider group of users was that something that was in the original planning for the, the product um, or did that come out of the the research process and from the the discussions and iterations that you did with users this idea was uh, kind of um, born uh, with Olaf uh, that it that kind of came came to us with a kind of this quite interesting pro- proposition of of creating a digital pin and I think as our as a conversation went on with him we we kind of uh, on both sides, saw that this this was a kind of key thing of actually trying to uh, play with more of this behavioral aspect than just kind of adding a chip to uh, to any device that would come come our way. So uh, the essence, I would say, of of a, of a pin is to to be able to to bring messages out in in. Uh, in a very simple, straightforward, public way. Uh, so it, it kind of felt very natural to to actually f- emphasize this aspect. And then uh, arriving from there, like as soon as we were playing with the capabilities of, of it, or playing with your own messages, it was, was kind of things fell in place of actually being able to to connect with others and kind of get others on on your course if, if that if that explains a little bit of our thinking yeah absolutely and i guess it's another example of top working on this category of wearables which is something that we've covered in uh, recent episodes of this podcast as well because you've done several of these now for different clients i guess probably the best known are the things that you've done with samsung around some of their smartwatch products is there a reason why you've developed this focus around wearables, which you know obviously in in many ways are, are kind of some of the best examples of multi-touchpoint experiences? 
I, I'm not sure if, if I, I can say that wearables per se is an intentional choice, but it's uh, I think it kind of goes back to this kind of uh, uh, desire to kind of do new things and, and experiment with new things, as well as a bit of our kind of background and history uh, has been around kind of doing these kind of hardware and software uh, products that kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, so for wearables, it's it's kind of uncharted territory and still is. So it just happened that that uh, stars aligned and we we got a bunch of those things going at around the same time. So within wearables and I suppose multi-touch point experience design more broadly, are you finding there are things that you are having to do as an agency, as a team of practitioners to evolve the methods that you're using to get to a point where you can call it good experience design. In particular, I'm always interested in how this relates to the user research process because, you know, that's still very much at at the heart of um, achieving a, a good overall digital experience. And I wonder whether this requires a slightly different approach as an agency to doing that kind of research compared to if you were creating a product which was just going to be confined within its own physical limitations as opposed to stitching together multiple different touch points yeah it's, it's a very i think it's a very interesting question and it actually the 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 answer is kind of simple resounding yes like we we actually had like getting into that field we we had to kind of really revisit most of our approaches i mean on the on the very simplest level, uh, there's not that much screen estate to design, really. Uh, so that, that kind of forces us to, to be much more mindful about the context of use. And that obviously meant talking to people and observing people, observing ourselves, and, and kind of finding kind of principles and intents uh, much more early in, in what we were trying to achieve. So we we typically have a kind of very experimental approach where we try to to make make the thing we're working on very tangible uh, very early on, and that that became like especially true uh, with with most of the wearables we've been uh, involved with. And presumably that's something where your noodle design tool comes into play as well, because this. I think is it continues to be an ongoing frustration really for a lot who are working in this field of multi-touchpoint experience design is that still a lot of the mainstream design tools which are used for creating digital interfaces do still seem to be kind of stuck in this uh, previous age where it was about creating UIs which existed within a single product as opposed to ones that could unfold across multiple of them. Um, but uh, yeah, that, at least with uh, the, the tools that you have access to through Noodle, seems to be something that you're addressing as an agency. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's been kind of the thing that's kind of unlocked our thinking and unlocked the kind of the work we've done in in uh, in these emerging type of uh, products. In the sense, like uh, if if you take some of the uh, the Samsung work as an example, we we wouldn't have access. To to the actual hardware on their end, 
Uh, it's, hardware is usually more secretive than, than the software and the appearance of the software. So we would simply have to kind of experiment ourselves and try to create hardware that was uh, along the lines of uh, what we expected it to be. And, and then kind of being uh, kind of savvy with, with kind of soldering and, and uh, uh, setting up like interaction input interfaces that would mimic the, the type of hardware we, that we were expecting was was kind of instrumental. So looking to the future a little bit, Roger, um, are there any particular tools or, or methods for this area of multi-touchpoint experience design that you're hoping will materialize? I mean, clearly you're doing some things within the agency yourselves to make that better with Noodle. But is there anything which is on your wish list that you would hope would emerge to make your life simpler as a designer? I'm, I'm still eagerly, eagerly anticipating kind of general progress, like where where me and others would be able to pick up on uh, on best best practices in general, of course. But uh, I think the the one thing um, the fu- one thing that's bugging me these days is that we still don't seem to have that many many cases of of people solving uh, what I call the multi-usering uh, experience. So a lot of uh, a lot of experiences still confined to to one person and that that person's devices, and they kind of just assuming that they they work together, but not they don't really respond well to anyone else around you. So as we're kind of seeing more of these types of uh, more devices and more clouds and and, and whatnot, uh, I think there is a kind of big challenge in in kind of making sure that it, it's harmonious across many people and their experiences. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It feels particularly timely at the moment with some of the things that are happening around things like voice interfaces and devices like Google Home and Alexa, Amazon's uh, Alexa being in environments where at heart those are, are social shared spaces. And it's it's kind of causing, I think, people working in digital design to have to rethink some of the the fundamental underpinnings for a lot of the design work that we've seen so far, which has been around creating interfaces, which even if they're across multiple devices are just for a single user. Now, when you put a product like that into an environment like the kitchen, for instance, yeah, in- inherently that's something which is going to expose it to multiple people. And so far, in my experience, at least, that feels very basic in these these first generation products that we're seeing there. It feels like a lot more could be done. Yeah, it's a it's a super super interesting and and hard problem in the in the sense that it kind of requires awareness of intent and context in, in ways that kind of hasn't been kind of required in product design before. Yeah, it's one of those deceptively simple problems that you'd think that the idea of just adding another user to a system like that would be something that would be relatively easily solved. But as soon as you start to unpack that, it does seem to open this whole trail of additional implications about, well, how are those identities manifest on the back end? You know, going back to that, the very start of our discussion about how the, the fabric of connectivity and the, the actual nuances of the cloud, which powers a lot of this stuff, impacts the end user experience. This feels like a prime example where actually until you get that 
sort of identity component sorted in the background, it's going to be very difficult to deliver a really compelling user experience at the front end of this. Yeah, and, and, and I kind of in, in hand in hand uh, with that is like it's a uh, it, it's kind of a, a problem of of explaining a system that it might not have a screen that is at least visible or within reach. Uh, so kind of the system will will kind of behave in a certain way, and maybe it's it's uh, it's the expected behavior for one of the users, but what. How do you kind of convey that logic to someone that's just visiting or or passing by or doesn't really mind being the the administrator of of your kind of home devices? It's it's a good point and perhaps brings us into slightly different areas of interaction design about how you communicate those sort of things back to the user or multiple groups of users. Maybe we need to start looking at some slightly different methods compared to the the usual sort of things that we've relied on for mainly screen-based devices. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things I always like to ask our guests on this podcast about, Roger, is dream projects. You know, you've had the chance to work on all sorts of different things so far in your career, but when you look to the future, is there a particular industry, a particular type of product, or you know, even a, a particular approach to design work which you'd really like to try and, and espouse in the future? Yeah, so it's, uh, to me, it's not that what, what kind of motivates me and drives me is not really, not really the client or, or industry they're in, but more the way we would be able to work together. So, Meeting, kind of meeting and understanding people and, and their organizations and, and their kind of their problems and, and uh, having setups where where we're kind of starting very early on to kind of jointly identify the problem that that we need to address. So ideally, every project is exciting and every every project that is open is an extra exciting thing for me. Um- can you clarify a bit what you mean by open there? You know, what, what do you need from the partners that you're working with as a designer to be able to do your best work? So open, open in the sense of not having uh, come to kind of too early conclusions. So there is a, there, there's always a stress uh, of, of not knowing where you're going. But uh, I find that the fact that that you're keeping stuff open, you're not locking yourself into certain assumptions too early. Kind of rather kind of explore very unrefined hunches in, in various ways uh, on the journey to kind of really getting to the core of what, what you should be doing. Absolutely. And it feels like something which perhaps is going to become all the more important as we get into this new area of multi-touch point experiences where yeah, having that ability to remain open as you start to understand how an experience is going to unfold across that much wider interaction canvas. Yeah, that feels like that, that open approach at that point becomes all the more valuable because you never quite know when the characteristic of one particular touch point that you then end up exploring is going to be something which causes you to rethink something that you, you've uh, decided on um, or explored quite early on in the project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it kind of keeps you on your toes to 
to be working in, with the open things in, in, in the new, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Roger, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great to catch up on some of the work that you guys have been doing at Top and your own background and yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Mark. that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Remember, sharing is a beautiful thing. So if you can think of someone who might enjoy listening to Mech's Design Talk, don't forget to send them the link to mobileuserexperience.com so they can check it out for themselves. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.